We can all turn to Mark chapter 1. We're continuing our exposition of Mark's gospel. And Mark is a very fast-paced gospel, and so by and large, my plan is to take a fair amount of scripture at one time, because that is, I think, how Mark would want us to read his account of Christ's life. Uh, But this morning, we're going to slow down uh, kind of in a unique part where Mark will give us the essential message that Christ preached. And so let me read Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we come to a a passage of scripture this morning that is of supreme importance. I suppose every passage of Scripture, you could say that about everything in the Bible. But when we think about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we rightly have a special interest in how he lived. Uh, the Scripture says that he is God in human flesh, that when we, we look and see and hear him, we're actually seeing God living in the world that we live in. Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God and God's will. And he hasn't yet spoken in this gospel, if I'm not mistaken. And so these are the very first words that we hear coming from his lips in the gospel of Mark. And likewise, also in uh, Matthew, a very similar summary of what Jesus taught. And so we want to ask that question, what what is the essential core of what Jesus taught when he was preaching during his ministry, during his public ministry? That's a very important question for us because uh, it's it's our mission, isn't it, to communicate some sort of message from Jesus to the world? I mean, that's why we exist. That's why God hasn't beamed us to heaven. The moment we were converted, we're still here. We still have a ministry. We need to know what that essential core, uh, what the message that Jesus preached was. And sadly, like so many things, the the evangelical church in America has drifted quite a lot in many places from this message. Uh, When I was growing up, I remember, if you had asked me, I wasn't a believer at the time, but if you had asked me, what's the essential core of Jesus' message to the world? Uh, Just because of the kind of teaching I was under, I would have told you that God loves me and he loves you and he has a wonderful plan for our lives. You know, whoever you may be. And and sure, there's there's a grain of truth in that. God is a God of love, John 3.16. God loves the world. He sent his son into the world. But that statement or that summary of the gospel implies that you you don't need to change. God loves you just the way you are. And he wants to bless you. He wants, you know, you pray this prayer and just step back and watch God give you exciting religious experiences. Uh, Watch him perform miracles. Watch him bathe you in prosperity of all sorts. Um, And so it's, it's a bit different than what we see here. 
And over the last few decades, the culture, our culture around us, I think we'd all have to admit, wherever we come from, it, it is not improving in godliness, wouldn't you say? Uh, the, the trajectory of our culture seems to be further down and further away from God. And so by and large, the evangelical church in America has, has, not, has not improved. They too, or we too even at times, have, have watered down, continued to water down the message of Jesus uh, to, to avoid conflict, to be honest, to avoid conflict with our neighbors who are no longer, you know, they no longer respect us because we go to church and we're Christians like the old days. I think there's no better picture of the, the, this common disease in America uh, than the following. So a group of evangelicals pooled their resources together and launched a massive campaign. Uh, you probably have even seen it if you watch the Super Bowl. Uh, in, in a certain major city, this is just one example of, of this kind of things they're doing, they've rented out ad space on a giant screen above the streets of a major city. And, okay, to they want to communicate the message of Jesus to the lost world. And so what do they do? Well, they put up an image of a high school party. And there's a, a kid crowd surfing in someone's garage. And, you know, kids having a great time. And upon the image, the caption reads, Jesus let his hair down too. I mean, you could have literally fit Mark 1.15 on the jumbotron. But instead, what, how do we want to summarize the message of Jesus to our world? Jesus let his hair down too. Implying that Jesus, it's not just that you don't have to change. Jesus is just like you. He hates authority too. He's angsty too. He's mad at the man too. And we can leave that there. All that to say, we, this is a great need. Um, you know, we can, become, we can live in a bubble sometimes in the, the conservative evangelical world, but we're kind of in the minority, to be honest, uh, in the West. So over the next three weeks, my plan is to dive into each of the three major themes of Jesus' message. And the first of which we will examine today, the kingdom of God. His three themes are the kingdom of God is at hand, you see that there? Repentance and faith are the demands of the kingdom. And so let's dive into the first major theme of Jesus' preaching, the kingdom of God. And to give you some, some uh, bearing for where we'll be going this morning, here's the, the truth that I would set before you. Jesus preached that we are living on the brink of a new age called the kingdom of God. And we must therefore respond immediately to the gospel call. Let me say that again. Jesus preached that we are living on the brink of a new age called the kingdom of God, and we must therefore respond immediately to the gospel call. Notice that there are commands in Jesus' preaching here. And so we will consider this truth, the kingdom of God, by asking three questions this morning. And the first question that we'll ask is, well, what, what is the kingdom of God? If the kingdom of God is at hand, then I need to repent and believe the gospel. As a result, well, I need, I need to know what the kingdom of God is. And 
there's a bit of debate about this. I mean, not about the general sense of it. Obviously, all Christians believe that Jesus w- is a king and that he will reign forever. Uh, any believing Bible student would, would admit that. Um, but you may have even come across some devotional books or heard sermons that, that present the kingdom of God almost as a totally spiritual reality. In other words, the kingdom, some say, is the sphere of salvation. If you're a Christian, you're already in the kingdom. If you're, if you're not a Christian, if you're an unbeliever, you're outside of the kingdom. And so there is some truth in that. We could go to verses to say, well, yeah, there is a spiritual sense of the kingdom of God. There is that sense. This, the kingdom of God exists in a spiritual sense. There is a sphere of salvation where this morning we are all either inside that sphere, we're saved or, or we're not saved before God. But I will argue that if, that if we restrict the kingdom of God to just a purely spiritual reality, that we are, well, we are, we are asserting something the Old Testament in particular would challenge. Okay, so I will argue that the kingdom of God should be understood according to the Old Testament prophecies that the Jews received, and there's so many of them. Uh, The kingdom of God, according to the Old Testament, is a literal, future, global kingdom that Christ will rule when he returns in glory. That's what I will argue. And let's just go to two passages in Isaiah uh, to to show that. I want to show you what what the original hearers of Jesus's preaching would have understood when they when they heard the words kingdom of God what image would have snapped into their minds let's jump to Isaiah chapter 2 and just briefly look at this Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1 I'll just read down to verse 4 It says, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, beheld concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will be that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may instruct us from his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And from Zion, the law will go forth, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war." So notice here a few things. Verse 2 says, in the last days, or your translation may even say, in the latter days. Uh, this is a, a, the future. Okay? This is a, fut- a prophecy of the distant future in the new age. Uh, there's multiple references to the mountain of the house of Yahweh or the Lord. Uh, there's Mount Zion. There's Jerusalem. And so for a, for a Jew reading Isaiah's prophecy or even hearing it, they would have thought, this is talking about our nation. This is talking about Jerusalem. This is talking about uh, the Temple Mount that is still even there today. And so they would have understood this as a prophecy, a literal prophecy that, 
the kingdom of Israel would one day be raised up as the most glorious kingdom of the earth and that God himself would dwell with his people and actually physically reign somehow from that place. Believers from every nation will stream to Jerusalem like a river. Uh, They will go to Jerusalem to learn the law of God, to walk in his ways, and he will reign over them. And so if we ask the question, well, what's the kingdom of God here? It seems to be a literal future global kingdom that God will will rule over from Jerusalem. Uh, That's how the original readers would have understood it, at least. Um, Let's jump a couple pages and just one more. Isaiah 9 provides us with a little more detail here. A classic Christmas text. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. We'll just read those two verses. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. So we, f- we see two additional details here about the kingdom. We see that there is this mysterious figure called a child. A child will be born to us. So we know from chapter 2 that God will be reigning over his people. But here there, there is this child that will be born. The government will rest on his shoulders, meaning he will be an absolute monarch over the kingdom. And he's given four titles that, that cannot possibly be applied to any human ruler. He's called Wonderful Counselor. In other words, his wisdom uh, excels the wisdom of all human kings that it's wonderful. It's the idea of miraculous, astounding how wise this ruler is. He's called the mighty God. Uh, and there's no, way, there's no way around that. It simply means God. A title of deity is being applied to this human ruler. He's the eternal father. He has an indestructible life. And his perfect reign is likened to a perfect father over his household. A perfect care, perfect love, providing for all under him. And finally, Prince of Peace. His reign will create world peace and lasting peace. And so we see that, that God will reign over his people, but it will be through a God-man. Second observation in verse 7 is it says, On the throne of David. So again, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of Isaiah and his original hearers. When they heard the throne of David and the kingdom of David, they would have thought, well, that's Israel. That's Israel, isn't it? Well, yeah. Uh, This Messiah will reign not just over a spiritual kingdom. For sure, it will have spiritual dimensions of personal salvation but it will also be a literal kingdom over the same kingdom that David reigned over. And if any of you have studied uh, various end-time positions, you may be detecting at this point where our church would land on some of those issues. Uh, and so, yeah, we, are, we do have a premillennial understanding of the end times. 
and a literal fulfillment of these prophecies. And if you don't know uh, what those words mean, that's okay. We'll just leave it there and we'll, we'll dive into it at some point. Uh, but this is not going to be an eschatology lecture, I hope. I hope that the goal here, and even just going through these two passages to, to show you, that the, the Jews hearing Jesus would have been thinking of texts like this. You know, a glorified Jerusalem, a, a, a Messiah, a perfect ruler reigning over our nation and our land that would extend to the whole earth. Okay, so the question that many people ask is, well, that is true, and we'd all admit that. We can, we can go back to Mark. Um, but the New Testament seems to have this additional emphasis on the spiritual. So, you know, in the Old Testament, there's so much about land and even, uh, you know, reading the, the Old Testament, the first few books of the Bible, there's all this about land and descendants and, and kingdoms. But the New Testament, it's more about personal salvation. And so some people suggest that these promises to Israel are no longer in effect because they have been transformed they have been transposed. They've been changed into a spiritual dimension. And the main reason why I, I would fall into the, the camp that I do regarding these things is that when God spoke to his people about these future realities, he was, he was promising them something. So if I promise to my, to my future wife I'll marry her, she's going to understand that promise in a certain sense. But then if I, a year later, and she says, well, what about your promise? When's the wedding? I'd say, well, no, no, no. That was more of a spiritual promise. I'm like spiritually married. It's not literal. You, you see, there's this, there's an ethical problem there. If a promise is made that is, that is later on changed to something completely different, and so I would argue that God is still going to fulfill these promises of his kingdom because he cannot lie. Uh, to lie is to lead someone to believe something that, will not, that is not actually true. And so if God promised the Jews, I will glorify the kingdom, I will restore the kingdom of Israel at the end of days, in the latter days, and he doesn't do that, well, that is, it was a lie, wasn't it? Because they believed that. Um, words, and here's a, here's a Bible study tip, probably the most important Bible study tip I could ever give you, is if, if you want to know what the Bible says, you need to try to put yourself in the shoes of the author and the people that originally heard or read the Bible in the, that specific section, which varies depending on where you are. That is because words have one meaning. Words have a single meaning that are controlled by the context. Now, the context of any passage of Scripture demands that that Scripture has one single meaning. One meaning. And so a promise in the Old Testament cannot have both a literal and a future spiritualized different meaning. Okay, I don't want to belabor this point. Are we all, do you get what I'm trying to, to argue for here? Okay. Uh, and I'll just rest my case on one text uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. I promise we'll make it back to Mark. But Acts chapter 1, verse 6, at the very end, 
uh, of Jesus' life on this earth, before he ascended, right before he ascended into heaven, uh, in Acts chapter 1, you see in verse 3, at the, at the end of verse 3, it says that Jesus was appearing to them, his disciples, for 40 days and speaking to them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so before Jesus ascended, between his resurrection and ascension, what was he talking about with his disciples? He was explaining the kingdom of God. He was, he was helping them and equipping them in the, at the last time, right, and preparing them to launch out on their worldwide mission of evangelization. And so at the end of that, they ask in verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Kind of a weird question to ask if they, if they had just totally missed the point, right? If, if he was explaining to them, oh no, guys, the promises in the Old Testament are spiritual, you see, and so it's just about personal salvation, right? It's not about a future millennial kingdom of any kind. It'd be kind of a strange question for them to ask. And Jesus' response, right, affirms what we're arguing for here. He doesn't say, oh, wait, no, it's, it's not being restored to Israel. It's going to be a future global kingdom and, and Israel is done with. No, he says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons when that will happen. So he affirms their understanding of the kingdom. Um, you know, we may still have some, some questions about that. I'd love to discuss that. If you are, you're into eschatology, you know, that's my, one of my favorite things to discuss, but for, it's sufficient for us this morning just to, to conclude from these passages that, okay, when Jesus preached the kingdom of God, he was preaching a literal future global kingdom that he will rule over when he returns in glory. Uh, this will be the restored and glorified kingdom of Israel, uh, when Israel is the most glorified nation of the earth, and this will be all to fulfill the Old Testament promises. Okay, so we're back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. We know what the kingdom is, but then we have to ask the second question, in what sense is it at hand? Because this was 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? We might think, well, it wasn't really at hand, was it? Because it's been quite a long time since Jesus preached this message. The phrase at hand refers to imminence. It can be used either spatially to refer to someone approaching, like Judas approaching Jesus in the garden. He is at hand. My betrayer is at hand. Or it could refer to time. You know, the, the summer is at hand. The season for a certain type of crop is at hand. But Jesus is here saying, he's not saying when it's coming. He's simply saying that, that we are living on the brink of the kingdom of God. So as he was preaching, he was preaching an urgent message when he was preaching in Galilee here. Uh, the urgency of it is that the kingdom is, is imminent. It could come at any time. Uh, the hour of its arrival is unknown. Uh, everything that, that God has planned on doing prior to the kingdom has already happened. And so it could be tomorrow, it could be in thousands of years, uh, but, at this, but it is imminent in that there is, there is nothing really left on God's prophetic timetable before the kingdom comes. Okay, so in what sense is it at hand? How do we know that it's at hand? A few, a few reasons. 
First, the king of the kingdom has already been revealed. You see that in chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark. The very beginning of the gospel announces that Jesus is this one who is called the Christ. Uh, The king of the kingdom has already been revealed. He's already walked the earth. He's already demonstrated his power over nature and his power over the demonic world and his power over disease and disability. And he's been risen from the dead. He's been raised from the dead to prove that he is who he said he was. Uh, There is no longer any mystery about who the king is. He's already been revealed. Uh, But second of all, we know the kingdom is at hand because the powers of the kingdom have already been tasted. Uh, This world has already seen glimpses and previews into the coming powers of the kingdom. Isaiah prophesied in another place, the eyes of the blind will be opened at this time, Uh, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And so there will be miraculous healing in this future kingdom. A disease will be abolished. There will, uh, disability and disease will be a distant memory in the kingdom. And that is why Christ did his miracles. You know, he didn't just do miracles to generate excitement and to, uh, yeah, to create a scene. He did it to prove I am the king and I have the power to bring about all that the Old Testament has prophesied. That the kingdom will be a, a, a place and an age of unprecedented prosperity and blessing where people will live uh, far beyond the lifespan of, of this age now. And finally, we know the kingdom is at hand because the citizens of the kingdom are being gathered. And that's us, isn't it? So in a sense, the kingdom, re- it is a present reality in that we see local fellowships, local churches that are have committed to one another and committed to Christ to function under the lordship of Christ. And so we see the kingdom in that sense through the church, that we are the people committed to obeying the king, to worshiping the king, to proclaiming the king to the world. And so the kingdom is at hand in that sense. All that to say that we are still on the brink of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not come and preach this message and say, well, I offered the kingdom to the Jews, but they rejected it, and now it's not at hand anymore. Now, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows uh, what the next event on God's timeline is? No, uh, the apostles preach this same message. Uh, The book of Revelation preaches with this same urgency. Christ's letters to the churches in the last book of the New Testament has this same tone. And so then, if this is true, if the kingdom of heaven is still at hand, if we're really living on the brink of the kingdom, then the final question we need to ask is, well, what is the significance for us? How should we live if the kingdom is really imminent, if this is true? Let me give you a picture. And this is the picture, this is a picture of the situation that you really find yourself in this morning. And it's, a, it's an image that Christ himself used uh, to some degree. The image is this. Uh, imagine that you are living in a land or a country ruled by a great, absolute monarch. But that monarch has, has traveled away on business. 
and has not said when he will return. But he has given the nation and all its rulers and every person his laws. He's expressed his will to every soul under his dominion. He's given you a clear stewardship, a clear task to do, uh, good works to, to do to promote his glory and his interests. But, but time has passed. And the king, we have not seen the king in quite a long time. It's been days. It's been months. It's been years. We wake up morning after morning. We don't see, we don't see him. Maybe even some of the younger, the younger generation, because they've never seen the king with their own eyes, they think maybe he's a myth. Maybe he doesn't actually exist. And slowly, rebellion and murmuring starts to foment in the country where you live. And eventually, people become so discontent with this king who has who is abandoned them and is nowhere to be seen that we start making up our own laws. Uh, we, start, um, we start rebelling against even the people he has placed, he left in leadership. Uh, we start electing new leaders for us. We start doing things our own way. Uh, we create our own army. So if the king does come back, well, we, this is no longer his land. This is our land. That is a, a picture of what Scripture would say about the present world, that this is God's world. Um, but God, he is not here visibly reigning all, over all things, and so many of us just you know, we're casual about it, or we may even outright reject the king and his claim on our life. But one day, say, you're still in this country, one day you hear a voice through your window, and that voice is saying this, the king is on the edge of the city. He is approaching the city, and he has heard how you have lived. He's heard of your rebellion, of your crimes, that you have rejected his will for your life, that you have committed high treason against the king, and that this is what he is saying to you. Those whom he finds to be rebellious against him, he will execute them on the spot. Or in the words of Christ, bring them before me and slay them in my presence. But then he also says this to those of you who are willing to turn to him. That if you turn in repentance toward him and believe in his kindness, he will freely forgive you for all of your sin and all of your crimes and all of your rebellion. And even if you have rebelled against the king from the second he left our country to this moment, even though he's about to arrive, if you turn now in repentance, you will be forgiven. And even more than that, the king is such a gracious and merciful king that he will make you like his son. And he will lavish you with every blessing that he has to give and raise you up even to sit on his own throne. And the man in the picture says to conclude his sermon, only turn now this very moment so that you may not perish when he arrives. That is what Christ is saying. That is the image behind Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It's not 
God loves you irrespective of your sin, or God will bless you no matter what you do. It is an urgent plea, an urgent demand to turn to the Lord in repentance today. Today. And every gospel preacher out there is really only this man in our, in our picture. This guy running through the street declaring a message from the king. Uh, his job is simply to present the king's demands. That's the job of the preacher. What does the king demand? And I'm going to announce those demands, and it is between you and the king what you do with those words. Uh, when the king comes, he will crown his friends, but he will cut down his enemies. Uh, today is the day to decide. Today is the day of salvation. Uh, the moment of crisis has not come, but it may come. Uh, it's not wise to live as if all things will go on like this, as if we'll live forever, as if God will give us years and maybe decades more to, to get our things together, to really come to terms with the demands of Christ. But I would also want you to not mistake the tone of the command. So far, you may be thinking, wow, this is a pretty severe command that the Lord is threatening to execute me unless I turn to him. Well, I want to add just a a one note to the picture. And that is that the picture and, the, and the, the command coming from the king to you, whether you're a believer or not, is not one of angry judgment, purely. It is rather a pleading cry. Uh, the king has sent his servants out into the world, the church. He sent the church out into the world to plead with the world. And when, when Christ was in this world, he wept over sinners. Uh, he, was not, he was not saying, well, you're all rebellious sinners, and I'm done, and you're going to hell. No, he wept for sinners. He even died for sinners. He even suffered the wrath of God. More than anyone will ever experience in hell, he endured in his body because of his great love for sinners. And he sent his preachers out into the world with the same message and the same heart. It is a desperate plea. It is a cry to consider your own soul, right? To pity your, your own soul and yourself. Uh, the good news, it is after all the good news of God, not the angry, judging, judgment news of God. In verse 14, it's called the gospel of God. Uh, the kingdom is a kingdom of mercy. And everyone in the kingdom is a sinner just like you. And if we're a believer, we can be reminded of that this morning, that this is a kingdom of sinners. And that when we preach to people, uh, we're preaching what we have experienced. The preacher is himself a sinner, a forgiven sinner. And so that is the tone of the command. Uh, the king de- te- has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We know that because that's, spe- that's an explicit quote from Ezekiel. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn this day that you may live. And that is the response. That is the urgency behind these two commands to repent and to believe. 
It is an urgent demand, an urgent command. And so the king will forgive your sin, but only if you turn from your life of sin and receive his free offer of mercy. And those two commands are so important, again, to what is repentance, what it is to believe the gospel, that we're going to devote the next two weeks to those two themes, the theme of conversion, to repent and to believe. And so for now, I pray that that this has given us all just a fresh sense of the urgency of, of the message that the Lord has entrusted to us as a church and as individuals. And so let's go to the Lord now and ask for his blessing on our ministry. Our Lord, uh, we, we know that the kingdom is at hand. And whatever position with it we are in, referring to the end times, uh, we know that, that the kingdom is at hand, that, that at any moment you could summon us to appear before your face and to give an account of our lives. And that is not a laughing matter. That is not a matter to take lightly. I pray that all of us would live sober-mindedly in this life, uh, that we would be a people of joy, a people of, of peace, uh, a people who uh, are not frantically running around even, but uh, a people who are spiritually minded and considering the great issues of eternity. I pray for those here, uh, maybe who have been too casual with their own soul. I pray that you would use this as a, uh, an opportunity for them to do business with you, that even later today they may get alone with you uh, and take an account of their lives and examine themselves and that they may be saved. We pray that you would be merciful to us, that you would help us to be faithful in proclaiming the message of Christ, even when that message falls on deaf ears, and even when other professing believers um, have issues with us, because we, we do not preach the same uh, watered-down message of the Christian church in some places. Help us to be both gracious, but also faithful to just echo the words of our Savior. And we pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.